I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to hit on something that holds a whole bunch of idea stage entrepreneurs back. How do I know this holds you back? How do I know it holds you hostage? Well, to tell you that, I've got to first tell you about Linguini. Linguini is what I named our internal product at Tacklebox, after the character in Ratatouille. If you've never seen it, Linguini is the chef who can't cook well at all until Remy, the rat and main character, hides underneath his hat and pulls his hair, which, for some reason, controls his arms like a puppet. With Remy at the helm, Linguini becomes a great chef. I thought the name was clever until some wise-ass said the system should actually be called Remy because he's the one that makes Linguini go. But Linguini is much more fun to say especially when something breaks and I can shout, Linguini! So, that's the name. It is also my favorite pasta, and if you're looking for the best Linguini in New York City, it is at the Clam in the West Village. Linguini with, not surprisingly, clams. Just a true delight of a meal. Stroll along Hudson Street afterwards. Yeah, I missed that. Anyway, Linguini is the operating system that ties together all the disparate pieces of our business and turns them into something more scalable. The arms of Tacklebox and Idea to Startup are supported by tools like Stripe, Klaviyo, Slack, Airtable, Notion, Squarespace, Unbounce, Calendly, Simplecast, Zencaster, LearnWorlds, and a few others. Linguini helps them all talk to each other, mostly through Zapier, which acts as the glue, linking processes together. For example, when someone applies to Tacklebox, they do it through a form hosted on Airtable. When the application is submitted, Zapier triggers a bunch of other apps to jump into action. Clavio, our email provider, sends the applicant an email notifying them that we received their app and that we're looking through it. Zapier then grabs the info needed from the application and puts it into our applicant database on Google Drive and sends it to me in a structured email along with the applicant's LinkedIn and, as of last week, a chat GPT summary of what we can find about this person from the internet. This is yet to pull information on the right person, and it said that yesterday's applicant won a bronze medal for Butterfly in the 1972 Olympics in Munich, which got me excited until I realized that was probably about 15 years before this applicant was born. I'm not sure we're going to keep the chat GPT summary going. Anyway, I then get a to-do list item pushed to Things, the program where I keep my to-dos, to accept or reject the applicant within 72 hours. If I accept the person, I send them an email congratulating them and then mark accepted in Airtable, which triggers Zapier to run through a bunch more flows. The new member is given access to the member portal with all our content in the program itself. It adds them to our database of members on Drive. It adds them to the list on our Sunday member emails. It grants them access to the member Calendly, and they're also added to the distro list for a number of other member programs we run. Plus, a profile is created for them in our internal member dashboard with all our meeting notes, their progress on the program, and all the rest of the stuff. We have these sorts of workflows for any part of the business that needs to scale. If this all sounds a bit complicated, it actually isn't. Each time I recognize I'm doing something repetitive, I try to automate the workflow through Zapier, which is straightforward. You basically type out a recipe. When this happens in this app, I want this to happen in this app. And Zapier does the rest. No code needed. I tell you all of this for two reasons. 
First, learning how to use Zapier for a random project is an incredible use of your time because it's going to open up the scope of possibility for tests that you can run in the future. It'll also help you scale those tests so you can run way more, way faster. Building out internal systems to scale your time is the first step to building out the systems that'll scale and become a business. It is great practice. And it's going to become super relevant later on in this pod. And if this sounds like an ad for Zapier, I promise you it isn't. It's just a really good tool, and maybe it should be. Zapier, you want to pay me for this? And second, because Linguini is the reason I am doing this pod. Linguini, while good at lots of things, is definitely not perfect. And while I was coming up with an idea for this week's episode, I thought, hey, I wonder if anyone has submitted ideas for the podcast on our site. We have a form on there asking for topics people would like to hear an episode on. When I dug in and found it, I realized those responses were being collected, but not sent anywhere. Dozens and dozens of podcast suggestions that have been tossed into the void. Linguini! So, we've got about nine months of pod suggestions living in an inbox that no one's ever checked. Apologies to everyone that sent something in. And big time apologies to Dave S., who has sent us about nine. Many of them great. So that is how I know that what we'll talk about today holds people back, because some variation of the question was asked no less than 15 times. It was by far the most common request for an episode. The question is around the impact of the thing you're building. I talk a lot about how critical it is for you to solve a painful, urgent problem, about how your solution needs to help your customer jump status levels. If you're selling B2B, about how your product needs to get your customer promoted. The people asking about it all made the same point, that most products just don't do that. Most products are just useful things that help people go through their lives, but don't fundamentally change them. That was the type of problem they were solving. Not the type of problem that kept their customers up at night, but one that was still pretty important. Was that okay? Or were they doomed before they started? We're going to dig in after a little smooth jazz, which has an invite today a little thing called Uncomfy Hour, and we'd love for you to join us there. This is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by the Tacklebox membership. We will help your idea grow as a business, and we will help you grow as an entrepreneur and a person who can do interesting and hard things. And today, I want to invite you to Uncomfy Hour. It's one of the things we do with our members that seems to be helpful, at least for some of them. We show up on Zoom, usually in the evenings, usually at 7 p.m. Our entrepreneurs come with something they've been avoiding, something uncomfortable, something they know they need to do but just haven't gotten to yet. Then we all get on Zoom, say hello to each other, say the thing we're going to get done, and then put our heads down and work for the rest of the hour. Microphones on mute, cameras on. If this sounds weird, that's because it is for a few minutes. And then it's great. You'll knock out something you've been dreading, and most importantly, you'll hold the time sacred for your idea. We're going to try an uncomfy hour with podcast listeners. Email team at gettacklebox.com with the subject uncomfy, and we'll add you to the list and let you know when we're doing it. Startups are uncomfortable. Might as well do them together. Back to it. Gross margin comes from status level jumps. I mentioned that there were a bunch of emails that referenced the question we'll tackle today. Here are two versions of it that I think are useful to kick things off. First, quote, You talk about bleeding neck problems a lot, about solving something that's immediate and painful and urgent. Unfortunately, my idea just isn't that. It's a need and it's important, but it's never truly urgent. Am I wasting my time? I feel like I can't be. 
there are plenty of businesses that aren't solving bleeding neck problems. Nearly every business I can think of, actually. What was the path for those? And the second email. In the last episode, you spoke about status level jumps, about how your business needs to help your first customers jump statuses to have a chance. My idea does not do that. It's useful. My customer should solve this problem, but I don't see how it helps them jump status. I'm sure lots of other people have ideas like this, and I think it'd be useful to hear how to approach them. Okay, this is a tough one. Because when you look around, nearly everything you own wasn't purchased because you had a bleeding neck problem. I'm sitting here drinking from an overpriced Yeti water bottle. My wife got that huge one with the straw in it that people give to pregnant people as a gift, and I got jealous and I bought myself one too. So what was that? It definitely didn't solve a bleeding neck problem. Storing water next to me while I work is not an issue. Was it status level then? Does having a Yeti boost my status? It doesn't seem like it, but maybe? I think we just need a better definition of what status jumping is. Here's a stab. A status level jump is when you leave one set of peers and join a new set of peers in an aspirational place you weren't before. The jump allows you to do a new set of things or play by a new set of rules. So maybe a Yeti water bottle reinforces the type of person I envision myself as, but it doesn't all of a sudden set me up with a whole different set of peers because I have $32 of disposable income to use on a water bottle I don't need. No status level jump. If you break purchases into wants and likes versus needs and requires, this was a wants and likes buy. So, as the email sort of suggests, why is it so bad to start with the likes and wants customer? Most of our purchases seem to be for that reason, and bleeding neck problems seem exceedingly hard to find. So, why not just live in the likes and wants world? To tell you my answer, we need to talk about gross margins. The first question to tackle is where do gross margins come from? And maybe even before that, what are gross margins? For those that don't know, don't worry. No one knows this stuff innately. I remember when I worked in finance, my boss, whose computer I could see clearly, was literally always on Investopedia while on calls with his clients. He was the embodiment of the piano teacher one lesson ahead of the student. Gross margin is the amount of money a company has left over after subtracting all direct costs of producing or purchasing the goods or services that it sells. Thank you, Investopedia. Basically, it's the amount of money you charge for a thing above the amount it costs you to make that thing. Gross margins, then, are emotional. They have to be. Markets are efficient, so whatever gross margin exists in most products will be whittled away by competitors willing to make the same thing for slightly less margin. If the customer doesn't care who made the thing, then the thing is a commodity and you're in a race to the bottom. If humans weren't emotional, eventually markets would correct everything and there would be no gross margins, or no fat ones, at least. If there's a gross margin, that means there's something intangible and emotional happening there. A status level jump. Something customers will happily and willingly overpay for. Here is an example. If I asked you what car company made the most profit per car, both the amount of money from each car and the percentage of the overall cost of each car that was profit, you would get it in your first try. It is Ferrari, of course, and it isn't remotely close. The company earned profit of $106,000 per car in 2021. Its operating margin was 26%. Second place was Tesla, earning about $6,600 per vehicle. $100,000 less, with an operating margin barely one-third of Ferraris. The industry average operating margin was around 
Ferrari creates a status level jump for people, so customers are happy paying massive margin for it. Humans make decisions based on envy, not greed, and a Ferrari lets you think of yourself in a new social group. Anything with big margins has to. At the U.S. Open in Queens, there's a drink called the Honey Deuce. It's just a vodka lemonade with a splash of raspberry, but it comes in a fancy cup and it costs 26 bucks. People take pictures and post them because that's a status level jump. They probably cost the people at the U.S. Open about 40 cents to make, but people happily pay 25 bucks for the status jump having one in your hand at the hard-to-get-into U.S. Open creates. This is obviously everywhere. Now, let's get back to you. You're probably saying, great, Brian, I'd love huge margins and I'd love a brand like Ferrari's or to sell $26 drinks at the U.S. Open, but I don't have any of that stuff. I don't have a brand. I don't have a product. I don't have anything to lean on that would support those sorts of margins. That would take years. And you're right. You don't have anything, but you're wrong about how close you are to having something that can create a status level leap and margins big enough to be the engine for your business. You're probably really close to that. Back to Yeti. I actually hadn't planned this, but it works out perfectly. Yeti, the example from earlier that makes the $32 water bottle I'm drinking from, may not create a status level leap with me today, but when they started, they created that leap for their first customers. And that is where I think a lot of the confusion around this comes from. When people give examples of products that don't create status level jumps, they talk about the businesses they see around them. Yeti, one email mentions Slack, another mentions Sonos. These companies are not at the beginning of their journey. They're somewhere in the meaty part of the adoption curve. Yeti started in 2006, Slack in 2013, Sonos in 2002. One of the biggest mistakes you can make in life is to compare your beginning to someone else's middle and get upset about that. The dynamics are wildly different. The needs are too. When Yeti started back in 2006, they had one product, a cooler. And that cooler was super sturdy, sturdy enough to stand on because the people who started Yeti were huge fishermen and they were out fishing all day with cheap coolers that didn't keep their food and water and beer cold and created dead space in the boat because they were too flimsy to stand on. A cooler that kept stuff ice cold for 48 hours and one that you could stand on and cast from would be a massive upgrade for them. They also knew it'd be a game changer for fishing guides, so they built one. Now, when guides took their clients out fishing for tarpon on the ocean under the beating sun for 10 hours, the day could still finish with an ice-cold beer on the boat ride back to the marina. That is the type of thing that creates moments, and moments get you great reviews, and great reviews get you more guests. And the guides could stand on the coolers to spot the fish, or have an extra person in the boat fishing from the cooler. More money. And when Yeti went to those fishing guides, the first ones to buy their cooler, they said, here's where you are now. Fishing with warm beers and one client. Here is where you're going to be with a Yeti cooler. Ice cold beers and food and two clients. Guides leapt at it. Sure, their old cooler cost 85 bucks and the Yeti cost 400. And sure, they never heard of Yeti. But Yeti sure knew something about them. They'd actually built something for them. It was a no-brainer purchase. Instantly, Yeti became the cooler for fishing guides who took themselves seriously. Margin comes from status level jumps. Where brands come from. The adoption curve for your business will look like a classic bell curve. Most entrepreneurs are anxious to get to the middle of that curve or plan for the customers they'll serve in the middle of that curve. It seems like the middle of the curve has more possible customers, but those customers aren't what you need to start. If Yeti had started with the water bottle I'm drinking from now, no one would have bought it. 
but they didn't. They started with the guides, and the way they convinced the guides was by showing the status level jump they'd get. Then the guides created the brand. Serious guides use Yeti. Guides are influential. Who doesn't want to be like a fishing guide? So their clients started buying the Yetis too. Then Yeti started to stand for something, and that is all about the growth curve. Your first customers are the most important customers you'll ever have for two huge reasons. First, they're going to set the standard. You'll need your first customers to be influential. You'll need the jump you create for them to be public so that other people see it and want to get that status jump too. It'll get diluted the further along you move to the right on the adoption curve, but the brand will always tie back to the leap those first customers made and the ones to the right of them on the adoption curve admired and strived for. Second, they set the margin. The first customer will always be the one who pays the highest, biggest margin. Theoretically, you're solving the biggest problem for them. No one else solved it until you came along, and thank heavens you did. They'll happily overpay you for it. But as you move to the right on that adoption curve into the fatter part of the graph with more area underneath it, you're going to need to lower the price because the problem won't be as acute. You'll need to add features. You'll need to market more. The status jump will shrink, and so will your margins. So if you don't start with the right customer, one you're really making an impact on, one the customers in the meaty part of the curve are influenced by, one that will overpay for the early thing you've built, you hamstring your whole business. And realistically, if you don't start with a customer you're helping make a status level jump, they're never going to buy from you anyway. Or they'll pay a low price that you'll be stuck with and never be able to grow with or recover from. If you help your first customer jump status levels, they're going to overpay. They'll also help you market. It's impossible to keep quiet about a product that helps you do something like that. The margins will give you wiggle room on the product. You'll get to make more mistakes building something that scales because you'll have the slack created by the margins. You'll get to choose how you grow. Ferrari decided to just stay with premium automobiles. Tesla, following a similar strategy as Ferrari starting super high-end, eventually moved downstream. You'll get to choose if you want financing or not. Profitable businesses are always attractive to investors. If you don't help your customer jump levels, your life becomes really hard. You need to be perfect on marketing and product and growth because you've got no slack. Raising funding will become a necessity, which is wildly unattractive to investors. They only want to invest in companies that don't need their money. You make your life hard and you decrease the chances you succeed. The answer to the question after all of this is no. You shouldn't build a business unless you help your first customer jump status levels. If you don't, you make things way too hard on yourself and you are worth more than that. Your time is worth more than that. But what if you don't know how to do it? Take pride in digging. Startups are all about noticing things other people haven't or can't or won't notice. If you don't have a bleeding neck problem, a problem that'll help customers jump levels, my advice is simple. Keep digging. But dig in ways that other people don't. This stuff isn't obvious and it isn't easy. There's a founder in Tacklebox currently sniffing around construction businesses. There are tons of people who need cabinets or a new kitchen or a new home addition. The process seems like a disaster from soup to nuts. But where is the bleeding neck? Who is it for? Where's the status level jump? Next week, he's shadowing a contractor for four hours a day. The following, he's working with a carpenter all day, every day. Deep research to figure out everyone's wants and needs, the urgency, and the status levels. Then we'll run tests on what he finds and see how people react. 
and starting building versions of a product, perhaps using something like Zapier to see if you can create those jumps and to see if people will overpay, then moving left and right until you find the right initial customer is the path. Get into a market you love and dig around until you find something. Build an internal product to help you scale some of those processes. That first customer will drive everything. They're significantly different from every customer after that, and they can make your business grow or hamstring it. Do not settle. And if you have an idea for the podcast, maybe just email it to me directly. Linguini! This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We will help you grow your startup idea and the way you think with our membership program. Full of people with startup ideas and full-time jobs. Hit to gettacklebox.com to apply and build your thing with us. And have a great week.